0: You are listening to The Sharp End Podcast. I'm Ashley, the creator and hostess of the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Since 1862, Mammut has been making gear that allows you to confidently go. In these challenging times, make sure you are recreating responsibly and adventure locally. This month, Mammut is focusing on hiking apparel, so the giveaway will follow the same theme. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to learn how you can enter to win the Aconcagua light hooded jacket. And thank you to Desert Mountain Medicine and Sunto for sponsoring this episode. Today I talk with three guys, Mark, Eastern, and Jay. All three of them are from different parts of the United States. In this episode, they talk about a canyoneering trip from Miss February that they'll never forget. A canyoneering trip where they lost one of their best friends. Her name is Fiona. She's remembered by her passion, inclusivity, expertise, and in enterprise and curiosity. This episode is a tribute to Fiona, and I want to start it off by how these three guys that I talk with today will always remember her because it's one of the last memories they have of her. I hope you enjoy.
1: So the the bowl we were in, as I said earlier was mostly in shade, but she found a ledge that was sunny and was just basking in the sunlight like a lizard taking it all in. Um, And she had a huge smile on on her face. She was in a beautiful place with people she loved and she was really, really happy.
2: Yeah, yeah, I remember her standing on the right side of that bowl, just glowing. Yeah. It was just one of those perfect mornings doing the thing that we all loved, that she had brought us all to do.
1: Um, hi, my name is Michael Uh All my friends call me Eastern, it's sort of an old college nickname that stuck around. Um, I'm just outside of Washington, D.C. in Arlington, Virginia.
3: I'm Jay Troop, uh, and I'm with Eastern here uh, in Virginia, but I usually live
2: up in New New York City. And I'm Mark Rossetti. I'm sitting out in San Francisco, California, pretty much in the middle of the city. And uh, I know uh, Eastern and Jay. I've known them both for a long time. Um, So. You know, we've had many opportunities to meet up around the country, but it's it's a bummer. We live on opposite coasts.
1: It started when I was graduating law school. Um, I told Fiona that I wanted to do a canyon hike when I was in Arizona for my law school graduation trip. And I meant hike in a non-technical canyon. But Fiona heard canyon and thought I was going to do a technical canyon by myself and was like, I'm going to fly out there and do it with you because she had... And canyoneering before that when she taught in Arizona um, and she also had been a trad leader for 10 years at that point so she had a lot of the you know required skills um, and so we started canyoneering together at first in the way that uh, rock climbers who want to do canyons do using dynamic rope and all that stuff and then I spent more time getting into the online canyoneering scene and learning about canyoneering specific techniques and uh, you know Static ropes and single line repels and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that was in 2015. And I would say Fiona and I found ourselves in Canyons together at least three or four times a year every year since then.
0: And where did Fiona come from?
1: Uh, so Fiona was when she came down to D.C. to get a job after she graduated law school. She was looking for people to rock climb with in the D.C. area and a mutual friend put us in touch um so we we met in uh, 2014 um, but very quickly she was a, a pretty core part of my social group and got to know all my friends and yeah Fiona really vacuumed
3: up friendships um I I met her through this kind of weird extended like my work colleague was friends with her in college and and um, that was, you know, I don't know that I've made many very close friendships through links like that, but uh, she had a habit of, of hoovering up people when 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 she met them and liked them. And so um, we met back in 2015 as well and then very quickly became fast friends. And first for me, it was more climbing and backpacking, but then slowly we all got into canyoneering as uh, Sheen Eastern um, kind
2: of explored it more and and did more and more of it. Yeah. And then Jay and I had known each other since, since high school. And so it Mm -hmm. was, you know, once, once Jay knew Fiona, then it was almost inevitable that I was going to know Fiona and that, that, you know, I'd be be on some of the same trips. And it was, that was just how things worked with her. And I I think she was also always um, very generous with her experience and, you know, knew that she had just Uh, well, she was humble about it, but she had really profound ability at a lot of outdoor activities. And so, you know, meeting someone new um, who was eager to learn, you know, I had, I had some background. I'd I'd done outdoor camps and gone on backpacking, canoe trips and things like that, and done a little bit of rock climbing. But, you know, I, I just remember interacting with her. She immediately was, okay, well, here's what you need to learn. Go ahead and study it. Oh, let me, you know, let me review what you've done. Let me, you know, uh, help you out and, uh, let me include you and let's go have an adventure together. That was, she had a really consistent attitude in that way. And that was pretty outstanding.
3: I mean, I think, a thing that was really cool that I liked is like, it really, I mean, it was, it was consistently at least one trip a year, I feel like, but oftentimes more There were like explicitly trips around skill building and around, um, make, you know, for, for beginners or other folks who are interested in, exploring these worlds, whether it was climbing or canyons. Um, um, the, it was a thing that Fiona really liked to both kind of actively learn from other experienced folks, whether that's going to Freeze Fest in Hanksville and kind of talking with some of the, the kind of old school cane years there, or then like teaching new folks and kind of bringing, um, you know, the thoughtful, careful folks who really want to learn these skills to do this safely um, into the fold, um, so it was—it was, it was always—it was a cool part of the trip having that be like an, a, a focus every year and a focus of like every canyon we did. How can we do this as safely as carefully as possible, so that we can continue to to level up? Because we had our sights set, you know, even from early on, on doing things like Mlay and doing things like these these bigger, more ambitious canyons that 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 are really hard to to do safely.
2: I think it was neat because she wasn't always, I mean, just to fill out the picture, she wasn't always only in teaching mode. I think there was also yeah. um, a humility and an interest in learning, you know, so I can remember her asking questions, proceeding down a canyon and saying to someone, hey, I noticed that all of your carabiners on your on your belt are turned in or turned out. Um, do you prefer them that way? Why do you prefer them that way? And being inquisitive about people who honestly might only have had a year of experience, but we're doing a thing differently than her. And she wanted to know if it was an intentional thing and, and how it might be better than what she had done.
1: She and I spent a lot of time talking about, we want to do X canyon. What are the skills we need to do that canyon? Okay. We don't know enough about pothole escapes. Let's find an easier canyon that has a lot of potholes and learn to do that. Um, and we also spent a lot of time reading basically every canyoneering accident report that came out and talking through it methodically about what mistakes were made or what decisions were made that we might make differently. What steps could you take that would prevent someone from ever having the chance to make that mistake, those kinds of things. And she took that really seriously.
0: Wow. She sounds like she's lived a life of enterprise and curiosity.
3: Absolutely. Intensely.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> mm.
3: Intensely. We hadn't, um, hadn't done a trip in a couple months. This last big trip we all did with each other was, uh, September. Um, there've been a lot going on, um, with like personal life changes and everybody's lives and all that. And, um, we're, we're thinking about trying to, trying to do something and, and found that the, the time and we, it was a, a smaller crew than normal for this trip. It was the three of us. Um, and then Fiona's, uh, uh, um, fiance Neil and Fiona. Um, and, uh, we wanted to do Hanksville because we'd done a lot of these canyons before it was all relatively um, cause we, we wanted to keep it chill. We didn't want to do anything wet because of the time of year and all that. Um, and, uh, and we all kind of needed some time outdoors to reconnect con- 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 with just cause it has it, already been a hard year for, for, for a lot of us. Um, and so, yeah, so we were out to Hanksville, um, and, uh, spent some time, uh, in the hog system. Really quick. Um, they, so,
0: did you mm-hmm. fly from New York? Yeah. And yeah, then, and then Eastern. Mm-hmm. You flew from Virginia.
1: Fiona and I flew from Virginia. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then Mark, you flew from San Francisco.
2: Yep, I came in from SF. And this was, I mean, we kind of had this rhythm down where we would do trips like this a few times a year, all descend and bring complimentary pieces of gear and make it work. <laughs> so we were we were used to all flying in like this. Yep.
1: So we flew into Vegas and then drove to Hanksville from there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is six hours. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah, so we did a couple, We I guess we were doing four days. um, Yeah. I think it was. And um, we did uh, some, the Irish system canyons. um, And we did some in the Hawk system Mm -hmm. and we did, um, I can't, Remember the name of the uh the squeeze super squeeze canyon. canyon. The super squeeze canyon that's like Chambers, just Chambers. north of Angels Cove. Chambers Canyon. Chambers, yeah. yeah. Chambers Canyon. Um and uh and yeah, so we had done it. we'd done a couple of days. Um it was feeling good. Neil flew home, uh, which why it's then the down to the four of us. And uh we had one last day um with canyon. So we planned we you know, we'd already been going for a couple of days. Um none of us was too kind of thirsty for anything too hard so we planned kind of two relatively quick canyons that we had heard good things about and yeah
1: so so a little bit of context here we had we had done a lot of canyons already on this trip and we're kind of ready for a chill day mm-hmm. and so we picked the angel system because there were a few canyons in there but each one on its own was pretty tame and so it would let us kind of pick our level you know, if we finish a canyon, we're feeling great. We can do another one. And if we finish a canyon and we go, want to go back and have some burgers and hang out, we can do that too.
2: Yeah. And I think we'd also been, this might be a false memory, but we'd also been enjoying uh, lots of slidey stuff. And I think we read that this one had a lot of slidey stuff in it.
3: Yeah. And there was a, there was a, we had, um, we've been spending some time working on skill building for going up Canyon, um, when you have to. And, uh, so we had actually, we had, um done a cool uh up and down uh, run of the Blarnies. Yeah. Um which was was a lot of fun. And so this canyon has a quick up climb section that's an offshoot of of the main canyon route. Um and so it was a fun chance for us to again practice uh that and so we had, we had done some of that this morning as well.
0: That's a huge skill because once you know a lot of people think that once you drop into a canyon you're committed until the other side, yeah. So it's really nice. But if if there's a flash flood or any danger in the canyon below, it's really nice to be able to get up and out.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
3: So yeah, I mean that was that was kind of where we were at the morning. It was a beautiful day, last day of the trip. Um, we were had two chill canyons planned for the day. Was the tentative plan? We got uh, I think a seven a.m. start. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was good. Everyone was feeling good. Um, we did some kind of this skill building by doing this quick up climb, but most of it was, there were just a couple cool squeezes and some cool down climbs, um, as part of the Canyon. But overall it was, it was pretty quick and easy. We were kind of m- moving through it and feeling good. Um, and got to the bottom of the, of the top of the last rappel around nine. Um, which is, yeah, it so oh, again, yeah. feeling good. Decided we wanted to go down to the river bottom. Um, there were some cows making their way through the bottoms on the other side that looked nice and we wanted to get closer to that. And also, uh, after being in the Canyon for a couple hours in the shade, uh, it looked nice, um, having some time in the sun. So yeah. that was kind of where we were starting from, uh, at the top
1: of that. Rap. So, um, there were kind of two rappels in a row and we did the first rappel and the thinking was that we wouldn't rebag the rope we would just feed the rope through and then toss the bag um so we were using a beaner block system um and so we set up the second rappel and toss the rope bag um and Fiona wanted to rappel last because she was enjoying the sunshine uh, there was sort we were in a bowl, but there was one exposed edge that was getting a lot of sunlight. Fiona always loves sunlight. Uh, she used to joke that she was solar powered. Um, <laughs> and so while I had do, been doing the last repel for most of the trip and then pulling and whatever, uh, Fiona wanted to go last on this one. So I went second to last. Um, and then. So uh, the, the way the rappel was set up, it was anchored 10 feet from the edge. And then there was a maybe 20 foot sort of uh, crack that was sort of a slide situation that was maybe a 30 degree angle. And then after that, there's a 40 foot vertical drop. Um, the rest of us rappelled without issue. And then uh, we stepped way back, probably 50 or more feet back because Fiona was gonna throw the rope bag and we wanted to be clear of the drop zone. Fiona threw the rope bag. Um, I told her to make sure on rappel that uh, she was careful because when I went down, the rope pinched in a crack above me. And so we wanted to make sure that the rope wouldn't get stuck for the pole. At that point, Fiona got on rappel and initially appeared to have a normal rappel uh, as she was going down. And then there was sort of a jolt that looked like she had lost control of the rappel. Like maybe she lost her hand on the rope or something. We didn't understand what was happening. I raced forward to try and grab and set up a fireman's. Um, and then she started free falling when she got to the drop. Uh, when she got
0: to the the overhang or where it was like straight right. vertical. Yeah.
1: When it became vertical, she started free falling. Um, I got to her first, uh, and it was immediately apparent. Um, you know, I was yelling her name. I was trying to get her to react. It was immediately apparent from her face that she had a serious medical problem. Um, so I knew that basically no matter what the outcome was here, that, uh, that we weren't getting out of there without a helicopter. And so, I immediately said, I'm running to get help because I also had the the maps and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I immediately ran for help while Jane Mark attended to her. Um, I think there's a lot more we can say about that. I want to talk mm-hmm. really quickly about what we think happened that yeah. caused the fall and then yeah. we can. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the Beaner block came down, which means that she was on the wrong side of the road.
0: Explain we'll the Beaner block.
1: Sure. So the, the system that we use, and I think many canyoneers in the United States use for repelling is you put a knot, uh, it's a triple clove hitch around a carabiner. Um, and so you feed the rope through the rappel ring, you put that knot with the carabiner in it on one side, and then you rappel on the other side of the rope and the carabiner stops the rope from passing through the, the, uh, rappel ring. But the, the side with the block on it, you can just pull the rope down with that. So that allows you to retrieve the rope after you're done with the rappel. The danger inherent in the system is that if you get on the wrong side, there's absolutely nothing keeping you up, um, which we were extremely cognizant of. We talked a lot about it. We always made sure to pull on the rope to try and get a visual on the carabiner. Yeah. Um, It, it was something we talked a lot about and we're very aware of the risks. Yeah. I mean, because we've heard, I mean, the the the
3: way this was taught in our group was explaining the system and then pointing out that the way that canyoneers most frequently die is by getting on the wrong side of the rope because of just the, the, that it's the mistake you can't make. There's no fallback. There's nothing there. So we talked a lot about, um, you know, what, how we do the checks that you're on the right side of the rope. Um, we, you know, in, in situations where somebody's compromised, or uh, certainly when we can and somebody's compromised, um, should should we do do a a two strand rappel instead of a single strand things like that were part of our discussion of how to set up the system. But because of um, ease and speed, and especially prioritizing for speed, um, given the longer canyons that we had done and and had ambitions to to, to do more of. Um, the, the block is, it was our most frequently used, um, system.
1: Um, it also lets you use a pull cord so that you can use a six mil rope to retrieve your rope instead of carrying, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet of thick climbing rope or thick Canyon rope. You can carry enough rope for the rappel and then a pull cord to retrieve it. Yeah. Right. Um, so this was a system that Fiona was very familiar with. We've been using it in canyons for many years going, I mean, doing dozens of canyons, um, and she was often the last person, but there is special risk for the last person. And, um, so she was very cognizant of that. I think that what happened is that when she pulled on the rope to check which side she was on, uh, the rope on the pull side didn't move because the rappel side was pinched. And so it felt like it was the correct side. And that would also explain how she was able to repel a few feet on it without a problem before it started sliding. Yeah. Um, And so I I think that's, you know, there's no way to know for sure what happened up there, but that is my best educated guess.
0: And Mark, can you tell me how she fell?
2: Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, you know, as Eastern was saying, there was sort of that, I saw her tumble a little bit in the chute. there was something something didn't seem right in the shoot but we tumble on repels all the time you know you lose your footing stuff happens so there was an initial kind of a uh, little bit of disorientation in the chute. um she didn't scream or indicate you know indicate alarm or say anything like that but as soon as she was out of the chute, um she was just in free fall uh, yep. and it it was i mean all of us I remember we're running toward her um, from too far away uh, uh, as she was falling. We knew something was wrong, very wrong at that point. Um, And uh, yeah, and, you know, and then uh, as Eastern landed, uh, as she landed and Eastern just immediately uh, within seconds just turned and went for help. And I, I guess, yeah, I mean, this, this starts to run into like, some of the things that, I don't know, maybe it's too soon to say it, but some of the things that sort of went right, like we're, we're just, we're immensely fortunate that Eastern, you had the maps in your pocket and you were ready to go. Um, and, and you went without hesitation. Like that was, that was exemplary. Um,
3: yeah. My, my recollection of the first few seconds. So, so Fiona fell back first. She landed on her pack. Um, and kind of in a crouched huddled position.
0: What did she land on?
3: Uh, soft sand. Yeah. Um, okay.
0: So not any like, sharp rock or. No,
3: we, we were rappelling down in, in, into the river bottom. So it was like, it was probably a couple feet deep of like soft sand. Um, not even small rocks or anything.
1: No, um, it, it was pretty.
3: Um, but she landed, she fell, uh, back first. Um, and, uh, had kind of in a crouched pump, 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 position, it became clear. She was like, she had tried to likely tried to wrap her leg around the ascending rope to try and slow or stop it. Um, yeah, but it had, had kind of landed that way like on her back on top of her pack. Um, she had a helmet on, um, you know, she had, uh, uh water bottles in her pack that survived the fall. Um, uh, which is, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the, in the first few seconds, um, we all ran up. Um, it was clear to all of us that something was very wrong. Eastern, you looked at me, you made eye contact. You said, I'm going for help. And you turned and went, um, And, uh, then Mark and I, uh, focused on Fiona to kind of, uh, triage, uh, what, what was going on. Um, she was, uh, she was not responsive. Um, her eyes were open, but unfocused. Um, and we, you know, we, we tried to get a response, but failed to, um, pretty quickly. We lost, um, breath and then pulse. Um, and so, uh, then... Uh, removed her pack so we could start CPR and we did um, two hours of CPR until search and rescue arrived uh, with Eastern then um, and uh, and then they they continued compressions for a while until we
1: established that that there was nothing we could do so it took me about 45 minutes uh, to get to the trailhead which was the first place that cell phone service was available um, and <clears throat> I think it was about another 45 minutes until a helicopter arrived, which was unbelievable response time. I want to really thank the search and rescue team there. Um, uh, Hanksville is extremely remote Uh, and they got there unbelievably quickly. And we
2: had driven out. I mean, from the town, we had driven out quite some distance over dirt roads. So, you know, it was it was fortunate that we well, Eastern that you were able to get cell reception from on top of the car.
1: Yeah. So I was standing on top of our rental SUV when the helicopter came in Um, and I ran over to them. They were asking me for a description of where she was located. And uh, I said, look, I, I can point exactly to where she is. Just take me up with you. So I flew down with them. Uh, It was an extremely short flight to the bottom of the Canyon Um, and Mark heard the helicopter and was waving a fluorescent jacket in the air. Um, so we were able to land pretty quickly and and get to her.
3: Like Mark said that, um, I was really proud to be there with both of you guys and respond the way that we responded. Um, it, but, um, we kind of learned from the medical examiner's report that, um, she had, she had broken her neck on impact and, uh, There, there wasn't gonna be anything that could be done. But um, her her pack had a plastic plate in uh, that gave it structure, which is a thing that I've thought a lot about. It was uh, one of these you know climbing packs that um, you know it's a pack, it's a backpacking pack that we had beat up and torn holes in and all that. And um, hers, the structure, rather than being an internal X frame or anything like that, was a kind of a full length plastic plate. Um, uh, not, not a particularly heavy one, but, um, still a plastic plate there that kind of ended at the top of the pack. Um, which, uh, is, I mean, it's really hard to say with forces involved in a fall like that and an impact like that, but, um, that could, could have contributed. Her helmet had just kind of two small cracks in it. Yeah. The helmet
1: was in relatively good shape after the accident. It didn't seem like it took a really hard hit.
2: I think, I I mean, I remember even at the time, um, being sort of shocked and sort of puzzled that we were in this situation. I mean, you know, it, it was just, nothing looked wrong. Nothing looked wrong. You know, things, it, it was just so instantaneous and so, um, and so mundane, you know, there weren't huge visible injuries. There wasn't huge damage to equipment. Um, it, it, it just it just was what it was.
1: I, uh, I, I remember after seeing the fall and seeing how she landed and where she landed, etc., I was so certain that she was alive, that she would need, you know, that she had serious injuries and that she'd need a lot of medical care, but that she would be alive. I did not seriously consider, I mean obviously I was trying very hard not to, but I was so certain that she would be alive until I got off the helicopter and saw Mark. That was the first time that I, it really hit home, <clears throat> but I really did not. I did not think that fall was going to kill her.
0: By By seeing, what do you mean by seeing Mark, like by seeing his facial expression or so seeing
1: when we got off the helicopter, I shouted, is she alive? And, and he said, no. And that was when I knew, um, but I was so sure right up until that moment.
2: <laughs> I think he, even then I was still I was still on the fence. I mean i i I, I think I think I remember saying I don't know. Um, but I mean that's not exactly an encouraging thing to hear either.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was um, one of the things we had talked about a lot in the group is like the distribution of skills that we had. And, um, Fiona was, was, had more, um, medical training than the rest of us. But I, um, I was a boy scout growing up. I had worked as a lifeguard. I had had um, CPR training a number of times as an adult as well. Um, have kind of kept up on kind of free resources and stuff for wilderness first aid as well. Um, uh, just because of the importance of doing it and that in these environments. Um, and it was was kind of immediately struck by both kind of like Mark expressed, the just how fast everything changed and some of the challenges of like mentally adapting to like a really jarring new reality as quickly as you can to fall back on okay, what's my checklist? what are the things? I check, how do I do this carefully? How do I, you know, how do we stabilize her, protect her spine and then go through all of the, you know, all of the things that you check for, um, the process of reacting to that is, is a challenge, not just in keeping focus, making sure you're doing it. But then, then that, like, I think what, what started me on this was Mark, your comment about, I don't know, like being you very quickly reach the limits of in a a situation like this, you very quickly reach the limits of your expertise and knowledge. And, you know, after an hour of chest compressions, like this looks really bad. Do I know enough to stop? No. (laughs) And I remember at, um, recently an ex girlfriend is in, in, of, of mine was in med school and i remember her coming home with a story from the hospital one day about a really exhausting situation she had had with multiple hours of, of chest compressions with a patient in in the hospital and i was just hanging on to that being like you know you've reached the limits of the things that you know to, to do and i knew enough like how to you know the the big steps of how do you triage how do you oh well we've lost breath we've lost pulse what do we do i mean the next move is cpr we, started as soon as we we knew but then all of a sudden i'm I'm out of my depth right like when do you stop what do you look for how do you do when do you actually call it and and decide that it's there's nothing you can do and realizing i didn't i wasn't really equipped for that certainly not to the level that was going to let me stop doing that for one of my closest friends
2: throughout all this i think um i remember you and i Doing a thing that felt really good to me, which was even from the first two minutes, um, I remember there was a moment where you were you were evaluating for injuries, you were assessing, and I said, "Give me a minute, I need to go think through everything I know," and and took one big step away and sat in the sand, and just calmly kind of went through, and I don't have any formal outdoor certifications, but I've, you know, read plenty of stuff, and sort of went through the list of, like, is there anything I'm not considering here? It's, there's the things that are obvious in front of me, and then I need to take a step back and calmly review the things that might not be obvious. Um, You know, I mean, in hindsight, like, the injury was was, was a relatively simple one from a medical standpoint. So, you know, there was nothing I was going to think of there, but, um, but throughout, throughout the whole process, you know, we, we switched off every 10 minutes and we had a minute to, to think about things to talk about things to be still like, well, not in panic mode. Like there wasn't panic to our response. There was, there were a lot of other things, but, um, but I appreciate that we were able there being two of us to give each other space to think.
0: Yeah. And, and also take breaks too with the 10 minute yeah. CPR, 10 minutes off that um, you're know, you able to do CPR for a lot longer than if you, only one person was doing CPR for two straight hours. I mean, it's, yeah. as you both know, it's exhausting.
2: Yeah. That yes. would have been impossible. That would have been impossible. A thing that strikes
3: me now is the importance of like communication and eye contact, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And weirdly like, Eastern, you like making sure that we had eye contact, I'm gonna go get help. And then Mark, I remember as you and I were escalating our response from stabilizing to, okay, she's not breathing, let's assistive breathing um, to like, and then to the, the the decision the decision to start CPR, we, Mark and I made eye contact, talked through the process, every, every piece of evidence we were looking at, like, What is her pulse at her wrist? What's her pulse at her neck? Those sorts of things. Um, Make eye contact, say out loud, confirm, and then act. And that having another person there to talk through those things and confirm, like, helped immensely because of the feeling that, like, the feeling that it was so hard to believe that this was happening. It was really useful to, like, check in with another person and, like, make sure I'm not crazy here. Like,
2: Yeah. Yeah it's funny when I think about, you know, when I think about, obviously we're, we're, we're telling this incident in, in the context of like what can other people learn from it or, or, you know, what, what should the community know? Um, and, and I think there's, there's parts that are related to the ropes and the technical methods, and, and that's probably worth talking about. Um, but there are part, the part related to the response, I think what's, what strikes me is that in this case, once she fell, there was, it turns out, we didn't know this at the time, but it turns out nothing we could have done. Um, in spite of that, I feel like there is a ton to be learned about responding to the incident and how that went. And honestly, how partly because of things we did and partly because of good fortune, things went really, really well. Um, and I don't know, it, it, it makes me think, like, it's remarkable from where we were, that everything going perfectly meant a helicopter on the ground in two hours. Um, and I think, you know, we've talked about in the abstract, like, you know, needing to shelter overnight in a canyon if, you know, if someone broke their ankle or something like that. Um, but it really brought home to me, like, what does it mean to sit in one place for two hours dealing with... Um, a medical emergency, um, and and what does it mean to be ready for that? And um, and yeah, so I think oddly enough, in spite of the fact that there was nothing we could have done, um, uh, it's still a lesson in in what to do, I guess.
0: And what are so, what are some of those other lessons that were learned? So, you know, maps in pocket.
2: Um, well, maps in whose pocket yeah. I think is is an is an important question because it's it's very fortunate that the maps, Eastern, you pointed this out and we talked before, but it's it's very fortunate the maps were in your pocket, um, and were not in Fiona's bag, because if they had right. been, we at that point were still evaluating for for a spinal injury, which turned out to be the case, but. But, you know, we would have been very reluctant to move her bag until we had thought things through, which is another five minutes of delay, 10 minutes of delay, however long. Um, So, so redundancy in maps is one thing. And then I think in the same way, Jay, Mm -hmm. that you were talking about redundancy in medical skills, um, which, Mm -hmm. you know, which we had to some degree, but there's no question that, that Fiona, who had a background as both an EMT and on search and rescue teams, in the past, um, that she had, you know, skills that none of the rest of us did. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. And I think redundancy in maps, in med kits, because I, I think back on the number of canyons we went into where we said, okay, does someone have a med kit? Yes. Someone has one.
3: Yeah.
1: But, but when I look back now and I think, you know, when Fiona's lying there on the ground on her back and we assume that she has a spinal injury, mm-hmm. anything in her bag didn't exist anymore. Right. And thinking through what gear that meant, you know, in this case, nothing we really needed was in there, but uh, I think we, I've been in plenty of canyons where only one person had the map or only one person had the med kit and whatever. And I, I would never do that again after this Canyon. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I I, I think uh, to add to that, kind of like you were saying, Mark, that the, it made me rethink the baseline of like what I think people should have from, from the medical perspective. Um, you know, in, in one of the things we were always solving for that it seemed like was most likely is something like a bone break, um, uh, like broken leg, a turned ankle, something like that. Um,
1: Someone falling on a down climb.
3: Yeah. And, and in, in a situation like that, um, you know, having, having a couple people in the group familiar with responses, splints how to keep somebody stable how to kind of keep them uh, uh, alert what to look for in terms of shock what to look for and keeping them hydrated and making sure they don't go hypothermic you know all, all of these considerations just because of the harshest the environment a, a lot of it is like is relatively shareable knowledge and in a situation like that unless you've got somebody unconscious um it's like even if the most knowledgeable person is hurt, you're certainly in worse shape, but you're not in, it's, it's not like horrendously awful. Um, but there's a class of accidents, obviously that, that, that doesn't apply to and something like this, um, you know, should, should everybody, I think be CPR certified. I, Think I'd say absolutely. After this, um, should everybody have like at least the basic? Um, how do you evaluate a non-responsive person? What are what are the things that you check and in what order? Um, I think familiarity with all of that is be valuable for every single person in the canyoneering team to have, or maybe n minus one at the most. Like if you have one beginner canyoneer that you're bringing through. But even in that case, it, it just seems like something that's important to, to know. Um, partially just because of how quickly your group size dwindles. You know, when right. we had four people in the canyon, one person got hurt. And thankfully, like we were confident given where we were and what we knew about the trip back to the car, that Eastern could make that trip safely on his own. And so it was most important to keep two people with with Fiona to try and stabilize her and evaluate her and do whatever we could. Um, In a situation where the trip back to the car might be harder or more dangerous, you probably send two people at at a minimum back on that trip. And very quickly, you might go into the canyon with five or six people, but very quickly, the people who are left actually triage. um, Or or if, if any of us had gotten to the drop site in time, any of us would have caught her her or tried to slow or stop her fall, then we would have had two injured people. And, you know, and so just very, very quickly, it, it, yeah, you you use up your human resources really quickly in a situation like this.
1: Yeah.
2: And then I think it's worth sort of intangibly noting um, who those human resources are, because there was a huge benefit. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking a little, cold and calculating care, but there was a huge benefit to, um, having the level of, uh, both trust and general reliability that we had in, in the people who were there. I mean, that (laughs) it, it, you can look at the facts of it, of like, you know, Eastern, I know that you have gotten into and out of many scrapes in kayaking and in other, in other various outdoor sports. And Jay, I know you have too. And and those things are true. But also we've just known each other for years and, and been in and out of a couple of, you know, stressful situations together. And all of that taken together meant that it was easy to know that we could rely on each other in the moment and that right. we were going to respond um, with a lot of um, presence of mind, um, which I, I think
1: is huge. <laughs> if I didn't trust you guys to be able to handle the situation as well as I could, I would not have been able to run for help right away. Yeah. And I would have not right. have done that with people I trusted less, but I knew yeah. that with you guys, like I could tell you, you need to take care of her. I need to go to help. We're doing this right now. And that would yeah. happen.
2: Yeah, and it just makes me think of, you know, other other trips I've been on in the outdoors and, and whether or not I really could have been part of a, a well-mounted, you know, rescue operation or whether there would have first been this layer of working out social dynamics with people before we could begin the rescue.
1: I, I think the biggest takeaway for me from this accident is that the Beaner Block single-line repel uh, needs to be... I mean, I, I always knew that there was risk to it, but we thought that as long as you were careful and experienced and knew what you were doing, that it could be done safely. Yeah. And I don't I don't think it's my position to tell the community like not to do this anymore, but I do think that I want to impress upon people that Fiona did lots and lots of canyons, certainly many dozens. Yeah. Um, and often was, and often, you know, Canyons like Ice Cube in Nevada that has 26 rappels, right? So she had done a lot. She was very often the last person. She was a very experienced trad leader with, you know, more than 15 years of trad leading experience. She knew her way around the system and around ropes and she knew what she was doing. And she, and still this happened. Um, and so I think, at least in my own, I, I don't know yet if I'm going to go back into canyons, um, my wife is expecting a ba- or my wife and I are expecting a baby and no one can go outside right now because of COVID. So between the two things, it's sort of, <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I don't know if we're going to use single line repels in the future, or if we're going to say we're going to use single line repels, but only if the rope bag is clipped to your harness or, you know, I, I just, we need to be aware that, for example, she may have pulled on the rope to check what side she was on and gotten a solid tug that would indicate she was on the correct side, and still been on the wrong side. I think that is likely what happened. And so, treating the beaner block as skeptically as possible, and considering using other approaches when possible, um, I, I think is a discussion that needs to be had. And, and hopefully, this incident can help encourage people to be as safe as possible.
0: And enterprise curiosity, like Fiona.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and that kind of brings
3: us to another aspect of this that I've been thinking a lot about, which is, um, the, like the risks of good days and the risks of easy days. And, um, and it's something, you know, the friends of mine who fly and the friends of mine who like, uh, these situations where mistakes are maybe simple and straightforward to avoid in most situations but fatal if you make them. Um, I, I think there, you know, it's it, there's a lot, there's a lot of room to talk about and work on systems and be as curious as possible about how we stay alert and stay consistent and stay focused. And things like checklists make flying much safer. Things like checklists make patient intake in ERs much safer it's been remarkable to me, like looking back on this. And one of the things that I've struggled with was kind of just how experienced Fiona was just how methodical and careful and knowing that I never in the outdoors saw her be cavalier or, um, or reckless and knowing that like it was a good day It was a sunny day. We were feeling good. We were looking forward to the next canyon. It had been a good trip. And we were doing something that was a really easy canyon for us. And still, like, it's still a very dangerous sport. And um, it's hard to know what to do with that because it's it's hard to have that not sound like an admonishment. But I think for me, it's more trying to lean into the 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 humility and acknowledging the just how wrong of an assumption it is to to assume that you won't make a mistake or that you can avoid mistakes uh before they before they escalate
0: well that's the point right i mean we're human and accidents happen no one's perfect
1: yeah yeah i think there's a tendency at least when i read accidents reports i have to stop myself from saying oh i'm more experienced than this person oh i wouldn't have made that." like Identifying everything that makes you different from them and saying, ah, this doesn't apply to me. And I just really want to emphasize to people like, there are people more experienced than Fiona, but most people aren't. And there are people who are more careful than Fiona, but most people aren't. Um, She really took safety in the outdoors very seriously uh, and had the track record to prove it.
0: Thank you so much to Mark, Eastern, and Jay for being on the show and uh, sharing a little piece of Fiona to all of us. I'd like to thank Mammut for being the headlining sponsor and thank you to Desert Mountain Medicine. Desert Mountain Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. We have great news. In accordance with various city, county, and state officials, DMM has begun running in-person courses. The health and safety of students and instructors is top priority and DMM will continue to adapt and innovate as they move forward in providing wilderness medicine training. DMM is also giving 10% off of all their courses to any Sharpen listener. Just use Sharpen19 at checkout. Code expires August 1st. To learn more and sign up, visit DesertMountMedicine.com. Are you ready? Juggling your passion for sports with a busy life can be hard. You want a sports watch that is ready when you are and a smartwatch that handles your everyday. Sunto 7 gives you the best of both worlds and is designed to help you get the most out of your time. It's Sunto's first watch that combines its versatile sports experience and free offline outdoor maps with helpful smartwatch features from Wear OS by Google, making this watch the smartest sports watch yet. Go check it out on suuntocom Sunto 7 to learn more. To sign up for the Mammut Aconcagua light hooded jacket, follow the Sharp Bend Podcast and Mammut North America on Instagram. Tag two friends in this episode post, and you've entered to win this jacket. I'll draw and announce the winner on July 15th, and good luck. Remember, play hard and be smart.